You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is uh, lecture number seven in our series on the theology of the Old Testament. I'm Father Kenneth Baker, editor of the Homiletic and Pastoral Review. In our last lecture, we took three books from the section on the books of wisdom, uh, the book of Job, the Psalms, and Proverbs. Now, there are seven wisdom books in the Old Testament. So in this lecture, we're going to cover the other four books, namely Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, which sometimes is called the Canticle of Canticles, the Book of Wisdom, and the Book of Sirach or Ecclesiastes, those four books. As I mentioned in the last lecture, the wisdom literature has a certain charm about it because it's practically oriented. It's not based so much on the history of Israel the way the historical books are or the prophetic books. Because the Old Testament is divided up into basically three segments. You have the Torah, the first five books, and the historical books of Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Nehemiah, Ezra, Maccabees, all of those historical books. There are actually 21 historical books. And then you have, right in the middle of the Bible, you have these seven wisdom books. And then in the third part is the prophets, where you have the 16 books of prophecy of the 16 prophets. So today we're going to cover these four. Ecclesiastes is the one we're going to deal with right at the present time. Now Ecclesiastes is also called Koheleth from its Hebrew name or the preacher. And so it's a, this is a, a rather short book of about 12 chapters and it's famous for a number of things. One of them is the opening line says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There's a certain amount of pessimism in the book of Ecclesiastes or Koheleth. This book was after the uh, restoration uh, and the rebuilding of Ezra and Nehemiah, probably written around the year 300 before Christ, written in Hebrew, and it's, it's in the Hebrew book. The theme of this book of Koheleth or Ecclesiastes is the purpose and the value of human life. The author sees all human things as vain and empty because they're temporal. Everything ends. And so he says everybody ends up in the grave, whether you're rich or whether you're poor or whether you're good, or whether you're a just person or whether you're wicked, everybody ends up in the same place. But he has a respect for creation. His advice to us who read him is to work hard to enjoy life with moderation in eating and drinking. But he says man should honor God and accept life as a gift and thank God for that. His reflections are on things that of ordinary life, such as the world, the sun, the ocean, the seasons of the year, human speech, the enjoyment of food and drink, hard work, wealth, living for the present moment, suffering, death. He has that famous poem in the third chapter, 
about that there's a certain time for doing things. There's a time for laughing and a time for crying, a time to be born, a time to die, and so forth. And this is the third chapter in Ecclesiastes. I remember, I think it was in the opening speech of President Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, he quoted this passage in his opening speech when he was named president. But it says, for example, beginning, a time for giving birth, a time for dying, a time for killing, a time for healing, a time for knocking down, a time for building, uh, a time for speaking, a time for keeping quiet, a time for war, and a time for peace. This is one of the famous segments that comes from this book of Ecclesiastes. I said there's a certain amount of pessimism there and it, because to him life is mysterious. He can't really fathom what God has in mind for human existence because everybody ends up in the grave. And that's why he mentions this business of vanity. Nothing is permanent, nothing lasts in this life, no matter whether a person is a king or a pauper, they're all going to end up in the same place. But nevertheless, he has trust and confidence in God, but he doesn't know about eternal life. There's a gradual development in the Old Testament, a realization of eternal life, immortality, resurrection. Those things come later in the Old Testament, but they're very explicit in the New Testament. But in the early parts of the Old Testament, they were not aware of that. So like Job, the author questions then the traditional biblical wisdom that the just or good man will be rewarded in this life and the wicked will be punished. He has problems with that because he sees often that the wicked prosper and the good die young. So he doesn't know anything about then eternal life of the just man and eternal damnation for those who are wicked. The preacher, Koheleth, sees that nothing in this life then fully satisfies the craving of the human heart. St. Augustine said, Our hearts are made for thee, O Lord, and they will not rest till they rest in thee. There's a kind of a desire for the infinite in every human being when he seeks happiness, and he finds this very distressing. He doesn't understand it. And he says, None of these things can really satisfy man's desire. Love, power, politicians, wealth, food, drink, sex, in our day we might say drugs, long life, many children, even wisdom itself. And this profound insight then prepared for the revelation of Jesus Christ about the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So the, he's a preacher, he tends to be a little bit pessimistic, but very realistic also in the problems that people run into in their daily existence. The next book, which is listed as a wisdom book, is a book about human love, marital love. It's called Song of Songs. It's our eight chapters attributed to Solomon. Like all the wisdom books are attributed to Solomon. He didn't actually write them, but they're attributed to him because he's outstanding in the Bible for his wisdom. Because of the language of the way it's written, it's probably in the fifth or fourth century before Christ, written in Hebrew, and for even centuries before Christ, the Hebrew people used this poetry from the Song of Songs or Canticle of Canticles with regard to marriage ceremonies, which they still do. This idea of the Song of Songs or Canticle of Canticles, it's a superlative. It means the best of songs, the best of canticles. 
In the traditional Catholic Bibles, it's called Canticle of Canticles, but in more recent editions, you find it called the Song of Songs. It's the same thing. It's a translation of the Hebrew in this particular case. What this is, it's a song that celebrates the love and mutual expression, the mutual love between a man and a woman. Here in this book, Song of Songs, human sexual love is prized as a great good because it is something that's a gift of God. It's something that God has given man. It's seen in that particular sense, even though the name of God is never mentioned in this book, the Song of Songs. It seems to be very secular, very human, very human-oriented, rather than directed towards the transcendent. It's the relationship between man and woman which leads to marriage. But in the fuller sense of the interpretation of this, is this is a song about the relationship between God and his people. And it's also interpreted in the sense of the relationship between Christ and the individual, or between Christ and his church. There have been many, many books written of commentaries, and the Father going be going all the way back to the fathers of the church on this book, The Song of Songs. It's a little ambiguous in certain places, and it's very poetical. It allows itself for an allegorical interpretation. On the first level, the literal level, it has to do with human sexual love between a man and a woman leading to marriage. But on the what's called the allegorical level or the spiritual level, it's a story about the relationship, the love between God and his people. And after that, the relationship between God and the individual soul. So this is a hymn then of spousal love. And like all good poetry, it makes extensive use of symbolism and sensual figures of speech, such as, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. And the young man here is referred to as a king and a shepherd. And the young woman is called a garden. The theme of seeking and finding stands out. She's seeking him, and then she finds him, then he goes away, then she seeks him and finds him again. And a common way of interpreting this song is to see it then as a hymn of spousal love leading to fulfillment in marriage. And traditionally, there's the literal interpretation, and then there's the allegorical or the spiritual interpretation. And so many fathers of the church and contemporary writers also are still producing books. There are dozens of books of commentary on the Song of Songs, especially stressing the fact of the allegorical. You find this in the writings of St. John of the Cross, for example his spiritual writings, he bases one of his writings on the Canticle of Canticles. So did St. Bernard of Clairvaux write about this. We have here, then, this imagery of the relation of love of God for his people based upon marriage. And this is a thing that recurs in the Bible. We find that in Hosea, in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and here very explicitly in the Canticle of Canticles. So, describing the relationship between God and his people in terms of married love has a valid pedigree in the Old Testament. As I said, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they all use that imagery. The use of marriage as a symbol is found also in the New Testament, especially in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, section there that's used often at weddings of the relationship between husband and wife. It's a symbol of the relationship between Christ and his church. It's a sign of the same thing, that Christ loves his church. 
So in the liturgy of the Catholic Church also, the Song of Songs is frequently applied to the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's poetry. It goes back and forth between the bridegroom and the bride, and there's a chorus from Jerusalem that's involved in there, reflecting on it also in this beautiful poetry. It's, it doesn't take very long to read the Song of Songs, but it's one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry that you find in the Bible in the Old Testament. And as I said, the Jewish people even to this day make use of it in their wedding ceremonies. The next book to comment on, which would be the sixth book, is called the Book of Wisdom. And of course, this is explicitly called the Book of Wisdom. This book is the last book written in the Old Testament. It was written in Greek, probably in Alexandria, down in Egypt, where you had a large Jewish community. And it was written around the year 50 before Christ. 50 before Christ, the Book of Wisdom. One of the things that's outstanding in the Book of Wisdom is the explicit statement of the immortality of the soul. There's a long development in the Old Testament coming from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, down through the prophets till you get down to this stage of the notion of the immortality of the soul, that man is going to have eternal life with God in the next world. We find that explicitly in the Book of Wisdom in the first five chapters approximately from this book. I'd like to read just a few verses of this from chapter 3 where the author says, The souls of the virtuous are in the hands of God. No torment shall ever touch them. In the eyes of the unwise they did appear to die. Their going looked like a disaster. They're leaving us like annihilation. But they are in peace. These verses are used sometimes in funeral masses in the Catholic Church. If they experience punishment as men see it, their hope was rich with immortality. And he goes on speaking about immortality there in the first five chapters of the Book of Wisdom. This book also, like the other wisdom books, is attributed to Solomon because Solomon is the model of wisdom. But that's just a technique of the books of the Old Testament. In order to have some authority, they attribute the writing like the Psalms to David and the wisdom books are attributed to Solomon. That gives them more authority than somebody else. Most of the books of the Old Testament, we don't know who wrote them, except the book of Sirach. We know who wrote that one because he signed it. Now, wisdom here in this book means fidelity to the law of God, as revealed to Israel through Moses and the other prophets. Both wisdom and Sirach stress the fact that true wisdom means following the Torah, the law of Moses, the law of God. It moves beyond just natural philosophy and common sense, as you have in many of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. So there's this the stress of, that, of following the law of God of Moses. That's the basis of wisdom. And wisdom is a gift of God. The wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Joseph in the discerning dreams, the wisdom of the prophet Daniel. These things are gifts from God. And they're proofs for the Hebrew writers in the Old Testament that their religion is the true religion and is superior over the religion of the Canaanites, the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, the Assyrians who worshiped idols. They're involved in idol worship. And the author says that this fidelity is superior to all the earthly wisdom and all the philosophy of the Greeks and the Gentile intellectuals. So the Book of Wisdom is an apology for the superiority of the revealed religion of Israel 
over all other religions and philosophies. And basically it has three parts. The first five chapters deal with immortality of the soul explicitly. The next four chapters, chapters six to nine, are an attempt to define and describe the true wisdom of Israel, which leads to immortality. These chapters have had an influence on the New Testament, this notion of wisdom, because St. Paul refers to Christ as the wisdom of God, the wisdom in person. And the final section, chapters 10 to 19 in wisdom, they deal with history of Israel and how it's a theology of history all the way from Adam down to Moses, showing how God protected and saved those who were faithful to the law of God. So those are the three divisions of the Book of Wisdom. Now, the book does not say, however, anything about the resurrection of the body. This is an idea which is touched on in the books of Daniel and Maccabees, but that idea of the resurrection of the body does not come out in the Book of Wisdom. In the middle part, wisdom, as I said, is personified and made an associate of God in the creation of the world. This idea also occurs in Proverbs and had an influence on the New Testament of describing Christ as the second person of the Blessed Trinity as the wisdom of God. And this third part is kind of a theology of history, how God is the master of history. Also operative here is this Deuteronomic principle that I mentioned in previous lectures. The Deuteronomic principle means punishment for sin and reward for fidelity. This book also abides, follows that teaching of the Old Testament. That's very important. So in summary, then the Book of Wisdom offers a strong polemic for the faithful Jew and the Christian against paganism and secularism. We live in a secular society. The main ideas, in summary then, of the Book of Wisdom, the last book written in the Old Testament, written in Greek, is First idea is the immortality is the fruit of fidelity to God's law. Secondly, wisdom is a gift of God and he bestows it on those who pray for it. Thirdly, the Lord alone is God and so the worship of idols is utter foolishness and stupidity. In the uh, third section around chapters 15, 16, he has a long essay denouncing the idol worship of the pagans who surrounded them and how foolish it is. And fourthly, the Lord God of Israel is the master of history and protects those who are faithful to him. And so this book, even though it's not explicitly quoted in the New Testament, the idea here about wisdom personified seems to have had some influence on St. John and also on St. Paul, as I said, who refers to Jesus Christ as the wisdom of God. Now, the fourth and final book from the Bible with regard to the wisdom book, now it's called the book of Sirach, depending on which translation of the Bible you have, the book of Sirach. In the older Bibles, it was called the book of Ecclesiasticus. Now, Ecclesia is the Latin word for church. So it's the church's book. The reason why it was called that was in the early church, in the first three centuries, the readings from this book were used very often in the liturgy of the Mass. So it took on the name of Ecclesiasticus because it was so much associated with the church. It's a long book, 
51 chapters, one of the longer books in the Old Testament. And the key idea here is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We find this in chapter 1, verse 14. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. She is created with the faithful in the womb. So this notion that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is repeated over and over again in this particular book of Ecclesiasticus. Now the author gives us his name as Jesus, son of Eleazar, son of Sirach in chapter 50. It's one of the few books in the Old Testament where the author gives his name. It was written at the beginning of the second century, before the time of the Maccabees, which we covered uh, a few lectures back during the second century. It was probably written around the year 180 before Christ, because there's no recognition in this book that he knows about the persecution of the Jews under King Antiochus Epiphanes IV and the, the revolt of the Maccabees. Now, like the book of Proverbs, the theme of this book is the great value of wisdom, which consists primarily in the fear of the Lord. And the wisdom of Sirach is found primarily in the law of Moses and in keeping the Ten Commandments of the Covenant. And also, like Proverbs, wisdom is personified in several places in this book. Now, one difference between the book of Sirach and the book of Proverbs is that the statements about wealth and drinking and loose living women and things like that, they're stated very briefly in two lines in the book of Proverbs. But in the book of Sirach, they're developed like short essays. And so he, he gives much more development of his ideas. That's why this book lends itself to being used in the liturgy of the church in the early church. So he offers short little essays or treatises on practical subjects, such as the following, how to train your children, how to choose friends, how to guard one's speech and one's tongue, like in the book of St. James. So many people err and they sin through misuse of the tongue, and that comes up often in these wisdom books of how to control speech and the tongue. There are warnings against excess in anything like sloth, foolishness, drunkenness, associating with evil companions, and avoiding the company of loose living women. And it's all very practical and useful information in the book of Sirach. Now, right in the middle of this book, in chapter 24, there's a beautiful hymn to wisdom in which wisdom is personified and made a companion of God from the very beginning. Sometimes this passage is read when, in connection with the Blessed Virgin Mary. So you have both in the Book of Wisdom and in the Book of Proverbs, and here in Sirach, this personification of wisdom, which eventually is applied to Christ our Lord as the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Towards the end of the book, the author gives a history of great men of Israel, all the way from Enoch, in early part of the Book of Genesis, down to Nehemiah, towards the end of the fifth century, around 420 or something like that. They're all praised and presented as models to be imitated in the pursuit of wisdom. And so at the end of chapter 50, he identifies himself as the author, which, as I said, something very unusual in the Old Testament. Now, the key to understanding 
the book of Sirach is that the author identifies then, come back to this notion, wisdom with the fear of the Lord. This means showing reverence, not fear and trembling, but reverence and awe before God. And the newness in Sirach is that he further states that wisdom is to be found in the observance of the law of Moses. That is, keeping the Ten Commandments and living by the Mosaic covenant with the Lord. As I said, he personifies wisdom also, like the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. The doctrine of Sirach in moral matters is very traditional. For him, there are two classes of men, the wise and the foolish, the good and the wicked. With regard to the retribution for good and evil, he's quite traditional and seems to hold that it takes place in this life. He's not clear about reward and punishment in the next life. His identification of wisdom with the law of Moses is something new. So that's something we find in the book of Sirach. And also, the author is unique in referring to God as my Father. We're familiar with that, with the Our Father, because of Jesus called God his Father. But that's not common in the Old Testament. But it is in Sirach. Sirach, he's unique in the Old Testament by calling upon God as Father. We find that in chapter 23, verse 1, and chapter 51, verse 10. And this is an invocation which was used frequently by Jesus and given to us in the Our Father. You can see that there's a certain attractiveness about this book with these little essays and sermons of practical wisdom. It lends itself beautifully to being used in the liturgy in the early church. So that's why the book is called Ecclesiasticus. So with that then, we conclude this segment on the wisdom literature, the seven books of wisdom. We have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and then the four we took up in this lecture, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, the Book of Wisdom, and then finally the Book of Sirach, or the Book of Ecclesiasticus, the last book of the Old Testament written about 50 before Christ. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.